0: Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. We're on 103.9 FM, 1450 AM, and now 101.9 in Manchester. We are expanding our radio empire on WKXL and, of course, our empire's already expanded on podcast. You can find the Beyond Politics podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate all of your subscriptions and, of course, your ratings and your reviews. We like the five-star kind, but we trust your judgment. Today, we're going to take you on a journey down into some of the most insidious, infuriating, and un-American skullduggery that's gone on in this country in a long time. And then we're going to talk about how we've started maybe to turn the tide and how maybe, maybe we can finish the job. Our guide on this trip is David Daly. His journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, The Washington Post, and New York Magazine. He's a senior fellow at FairVote, the former editor of Salon, and the author of two recent books. Now, I'm categorizing them roughly as one that's about sort of the journey down and one that's about mm, the maybe, maybe, maybe we can work our way back. But I have a little bit of a problem today. The problem is that the title of the first book, which I badly want to plug, the title is not something that I can get away with saying on the air, according to the FCC. So I'm going to say it. Well, let me put it this way. It's called Rat (laughs) okay? Rat Bleeped. We'll call it uh, Rat Fouled for the rest of this episode. Rat Fouled. And then the second book is Unrigged. And I'm really looking forward to this whole journey through the nether regions of America. David Daly, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. Good to be here.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I got to admit, like most Americans, I'm kind of tired about hearing about the journey down. But I think we've got to go there because one of the services that I think you're providing through this book, Rat Bleeped, people can Google it. You know what I'm talking about. Well, why don't you tell us? You're providing a service. You're really documenting the true extent of exactly what's happened and and how bad the problems have become. First of all, let's just explain. You didn't just pull this title out of thin air. What does rat bleeped refer to?
1: Well, redistricting and gerrymandering are two of the tools that politicians have used for a long time to effectively corrupt democracy make elections less meaningful, and conspire to lock themselves in office, regardless of what the people want. And redistricting and gerrymandering are long, boring words that uh, made you fall asleep in civics class, uh, if you were lucky enough to even have civics class back in seventh grade, right? Um, And so redistricting and gerrymandering have never been more of a problem than they are today, high powered computers, partisan polarization, the close to 50-50 divide in in so many states, it makes these lines matter more than any other time, perhaps in our history. Um, And so, you know, I set out to tell a story about redistricting and gerrymandering these boring, wonky topics that I think are really, really important understanding how messed up our democracy has become. And we sold it as Gerrymandered Nation. And the publisher said, yeah, you're trying to write a book about this stuff. You got to give it a sexier title than that. Um, and so um, rat fouled uh, is, is, is um, it's a political term, that really comes out of Watergate uh, and sort of the dirty tricks that the Nixon campaign was involved in. Um, Dirty tricks that they did on the sly really inexpensively um, because this is the radio I can can sing dirty deeds done dirt cheap for you, right? Um, That really is what we're talking about here. Dirty deeds and they're done dirt cheap. I apologize to all of the people of New Hampshire for that. But see, gerrymandering and redistricting can be exciting if you give it the right frame and a little bit of ACDC. And uh, so that is what we try to do in that title.
0: Well, I think one of the things that's, I I think, both clever about the title and sort of important for people to understand is that the title comes from a quainter time in America. (laughs) That term, rat fouled, I think we've decided, you know, what the kinds of dirty tricks that originally the Nixon campaign was engaged in were things like ordering hundreds and hundreds of pizzas to the opposition headquarters, general messing around to make life more difficult for the opposition. What they then did was they obviously stepped it up to a level of criminality and undermining of democracy that had never been seen before in American history. And Never seen before in the sense that it really went all the way to the top. It was an intentional assault on the ability to conduct a free and fair election. And so that transition from garden variety skullduggery to, you know, a deep assault on everyone's franchise, everyone's ability to vote and control the course of our country in a, in a democratic election, that's really what you're calling back to that title. And I think maybe people don't understand how profound a change we saw when this process was kicked off. So maybe you could take us back. Your book sort of traces some of the roots of this to the 2000s and sort of the the eve after Barack Obama's election. So what happened?
1: I think that's right. Um, 2008 is an historic election in this country. We elect our, our first black president in Barack Obama, and it's a wipeout across the board. Um, Democrats win a supermajority majority in the US Senate, uh, 60 seats, um, which from our vantage point today seems insane that you know, as recently as a dozen years ago, they were able to uh, control a filibuster proof majority, uh, huge majorities in the US House, state legislatures around the country. And if you go back, if you look at the coverage that night, Um, You've got the brightest minds in American politics on all sides of the aisle, on news networks on all sides of the aisle, left, center, and right, saying that the Democratic Party is um, going to be the majority party in this country for a generation, uh, that the Obama coalition, that the changing demographics of the country... Uh, could make the Republicans a minority party for a long, long time to come. And of course, it didn't exactly work out that way, did it? And that is because a handful of Republican strategists recognized soon after that night, as they sought a path back to power, that as historic as that election might have been, the election coming up in 2010 had the ability to be much more consequential. And that's because 2010 is um, a census year. And what do we do after the census? Every 10 years, we redistrict. And who controls redistricting in this country? In about 80% of the states, it is the state legislatures. And so what these really sophisticated Republican operatives recognized was that this was their chance. They might have been staring down these changing demographics and... um, a new democratic majority in the nation, but that if they could control a handful of state legislative seats in a handful of important states, we're talking about 107 state legislative seats in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, states we keep talking about, right, over the course of the last decade, um, they could have the ability to effectively control the redistricting process in all of these states, to lock Democrats out of the room when the maps were being drawn, to have complete control of the process, and to use the emerging new computer technologies and mapping software to draw themselves lines on which they could not be beaten in state legislatures and for... um, congressional districts around the country, and that was called Red Map, and that's exactly what it created. Um, It's short for the Redistricting Majority Project, and I don't think you can understand the current nature of American politics without understanding what Red Map created and unleashed.
0: It's a really fascinating insight that one of the things that the Obama campaign was lauded for was their strategic insight, Into the primary process, they saw that there were what in business terminology one would call strategic control points. There were important, outsized important primaries and most of all caucuses that if they could win those strategic control points, they could control the nominating process and therefore secure the nomination. It was a great David Pluff insight. It was sort of like the MacArthur Island skipping strategy in World War II in the Pacific Theater. You don't have to control everything. You need the key strategic control points. It sounds like one of the insights that the Republicans devised was, okay, we can do the same thing if we control the strategic spots in the legislatures, and by the way, we don't have to win all the seats. We have to win the key seats so that we get the majorities and with the majorities, we can draw the maps and with the maps, we can exert the control and leverage for the next 10 years. Walk us through a little bit of what that was like. You you describe this as one of the greatest heists in American political history that, that I mean, we're literally talking about a theft in some way, of power and control that individual citizens should have rightfully had. So so what was that process like, and what was the outcome? What did, it, what did it mean in terms of skewing the vote?
1: Republicans set out to win those 107 state legislative races in very close states, like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, elsewhere. Pennsylvania was so close, as we Journeyed into the 2010 election, that um, they've got a 203 member lower a chamber there. It was 102 Democrats, 101 Republicans. Wow. So, Red Map did not require winning a lot of seats. As you say, it required winning a handful of seats in the most important states. And with that came outsized control over redistricting, um, which in that moment, had the ability to remake American politics and effectively remake American democracy. Um, What Republicans did is they spent much of 2010 um, looking for the outrageous issue that would motivate voters in these key swing states. Um, And so they, they brought the levers of national politics to local politics. Um, these sleepy state legislative races that don't ordinarily have um, an awful lot of energy behind them or, you know, a lot of advertising behind them. Um, And they, they focus grouped in all of these places. They found the hot button issue that would agitate voters to kick out Local long-term incumbents um, who they knew probably right. I mean, y- your state rep in many cases you run into with the grocery store in, in in a lot of these in a lot of these towns. You know, uh, I see him or her at the you know local high school or you know a little league game or something. Um, so to to turn on these people, you've got to find the right issue, um, and so that was what they did, um, and then they dumped. Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars into these local races over the last six weeks of the campaign, Um, and they drowned these incumbents who didn't see it coming and for whom $150,000 might have been twice the budget for their entire race, and suddenly that was being dumped in in negative ads um, that were Completely sophisticated and done by you know national people who were usually working on on much bigger things, um, and so for thirty million dollars, that's what Red Map cost, and you can't you can't lose a U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire or Connecticut for that much money. Um, you know when um, it's it's chump change in American politics. Um, and look what it delivered for Republicans, $30 million. It, it bought them effectively um, control of all of these purple state legislatures for the last decade. Um, and it gave them a huge leg up in the race for the U.S. House over all of this time that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So 2012 comes around and Democratic candidates for the U.S. House Um, in a year, right, that Barack Obama is reelected, that Democrats gain seats in the U.S. Senate. Um, Democratic U.S. House candidates win 1.4 million more votes nationwide, and yet Republicans hold the chamber, 234-201. Barack Obama's second term agenda effectively ended on the night that he was reelected, and it's because these states that voted for Obama and gave a majority of their congressional votes to Democratic candidates, places like Pennsylvania, that same night, the 18-person congressional delegation in Pennsylvania, 13 Republicans and five Democrats. A state like Michigan, nine Republicans and five Democrats. A state like Ohio, 12 Republicans and four Democrats. North Carolina, uh, you know, most of, of the decade, 10 Republicans and three Democrats. Um, and so you can look at and these are 50,
0: 50 states, otherwise.
1: 50, 50 states that Obama won in 2008, won most of them in 2012, um, that deliver about 75 percent, perhaps 80 percent of their congressional seats to Republicans. Uh, and at the state legislative level, that advantage has not dulled for 10 years Democrats did not win back a single state legislative chamber in any of those states for the last decade, even in years where they won hundreds of thousands of more votes. What did Red Map do? After the 2018 midterms, there were 59 million Americans, just about one in six of us, living in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature was controlled by the party that won fewer votes in that fall's election. Um, spoiler alert, all 59 million of those people lived in states in which democratic candidates won more votes and Republicans Mm -hmm. held power. Nevertheless, um, we don't elect state legislative chambers or the U S house by, by popular vote. Of course, we don't do much of anything by popular vote, but it's still, it's, it's really unusual to have that kind of disconnect, um, but I'd go a step further. I'd say it's extraordinarily dangerous to have that kind of disconnect in our politics and to have it be effectively now an enduring part of the landscape. Um, When a majority of people cannot change their government, even when they turn out with a clear desire to do so, when the maps are not responsive, when they're drawn in a way to lock one side or the other in power, That is undemocratic, it is un-American, and if it happened in other countries, we would call it tyrannical. We would call it a dictatorial. Um, And that is what we are beginning to look at here, because after a decade of minority rule in state after state, uh, we are in, I think, a tipping point uh, for what the future uh, of government by and for the people with the consent of the governed means.
0: This episode today is intended as a bit of a companion episode to the one that we released as a podcast and was broadcast on Monday, we hosted the former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, the author of Laboratories of Autocracy. I was joking on the air that that's an awful lot of syllables, kind of like your publisher was saying to you about your book. You know, it would be it would be maybe a little bit better to, to break that down a little bit more for folks. But the thing that he shows so compellingly in that book and in that conversation. And I urge people to check it out. Check it out in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. Listen to it back to back because it really does go hand in hand with the story that David Daly is telling us here today. This red map effort, this Republican scheme to leverage these relatively small investments. Folks, there were $14 billion spent in 2020 on American elections, $14 billion. And what, David, what you're telling us is, for $30 million, Republicans were able to make this small strategic investment that gave them all of these benefits from their perspective. Not only did it deliver them ongoing control of state legislative maps, it gave them control of congressional maps. With these vast, skewing uh, results, we're talking about states where the Democratic vote, I'm saying small d Democratic, where the vote of actual human beings went overwhelmingly to Democrats, and yet the power went to Republicans. And by the way, what David Pepper was pointing out is that Republicans went on to pass all kinds of absolutely crazy laws in these legislatures that they controlled. Okay, I think we've depressed people enough. Big caveat for our listeners. We can't guarantee that there's a happy end to this story yet. But David, in your follow-up book, Unrigged, which, I mean, the title kind of speaks for itself, you do start to lay out the story of the efforts to try to turn this scheme around, this undemocratic, insidious, downright un-American scheme that we saw in 2010, and try to drag the system back to some kind of fairness, some kind of democracy. So where does that story start for you and in your book?
1: Thank you for sticking with me, everybody, Uh, because, no, I do, I understand how this can feel bleak and all-encompassing, and um, after the 2016 election, uh, in which, you know, once again, one side won most of the votes, the other side won most of the power, uh, I would go out and and give talks, and uh, I would sometimes feel like I had this Black cloud hanging over my head. I was the character in the Peanuts comic strip, right? Because I wasn't dirty. I was just, I was just bringing a, a, a sadness and darkness everywhere that I went. And people would say, "Well, what can we do about it?" And I'd kind of throw my hands in the air and go, "I don't know. Uh, do you have any bourbon?" Um, and well, you know, there's I, a
0: serious point in there. Sorry, not That's yeah. kind of. But there's a serious point in there that I actually, I, 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 I want to make because. This is the, the thing that I find most infuriating. And I think most people that I talk with about this topic find most infuriating. What you hear from my good friends who are Republicans is, well, if you don't like the system, win elections, and that's what democracy is about. I find this so insanely infuriating. You write the rules to make it almost impossible for Democrats to win elections. And then you say, all you have to do is win elections in order to overturn the crazy rules we wrote to make sure you can't win elections. And somehow people are able to say this with a straight face. It drives me up the wall. It's the same thing we've been saying to women in this country, we've been saying to Black people in this country, that we've been saying to every group that is out of power in this country for hundreds of years is, hey, if you don't like things, it's a democracy, just change them. Okay, how do we do that when you've written the rules so that it's almost impossible to do that? Sorry, I digress. I rant. You are telling a much more sane story no, about you are used to you be all com- depression.
1: You are completely correct. Um, you know, you sound a lot like the chief justice in his opinion on partisan gerrymandering, in which he says, this isn't a problem. People can just go out and win elections and and and, and fix it and get different legislators to do that. And it's like, you don't understand how this partisan gerrymandering things works, do you, sir? Um, um, but here's what I would say. Um, I decided that it was not A great use of my time um, or uh, of anybody's energy to simply try and uh, point out problems. And so I said, I'm going to spend some time and travel the country and look for people who are searching for solutions. Um, And all of the solutions, hey, I don't know if they're going to work. I don't know if they're going to win. But at a time in which everybody was saying, oh, this structural stuff, it's too big, it's, it's impossible to change. I wanted to meet some Don Quixotes who were all like, no, you know, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Um, and what I found that I think is the most exciting piece of this is that when you go to Michigan, when you go to Idaho, to Utah, to Florida, to Maine, states again, or oftentimes one party states, what you see on the ground when you turn off Fox News, when you turn off your social media bubbles, is that it is still possible in all of these states for citizens to come together of all parties and work to create big structural change together across lines. And I saw it happen or else I wouldn't have believed it either. Right. Um, but I mean, I went to Michigan and I saw what happened there. There was a 27 year old woman. Her name was Katie Fahey. In the morning after the 2016 election, she posts on Facebook that, um, you know, she wanted to do something about gerrymandering in the state because, you know, she knew that there were Trump voters in her family and Bernie voters and Hillary voters and Thanksgiving was coming up and she imagined the mashed potatoes were gonna be flying through the air and the cranberry sauce and, you know. um, And that Facebook post launches a redistricting revolution in Michigan. Uh, It goes insanely viral. They are able to build an organization out of it. It starts with, you know, Google spreadsheets and, you know, Facebook messages. Uh, and it turns into a statewide petition that 425,000 people sign. And in November of 2018, 61% of voters in Michigan uh, sign up uh, you know, a, 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 and back um, an independent redistricting commission. And right now, instead of uh, the partisan politicians drawing the lines, regular people are doing it. Um, And there is a chance for a better, fairer process in Michigan over the course of the next decade, as a result, you know? I mean, I went to Idaho and, you know, I mean, imagine a a redder, more one-party state than Idaho. Um, It it is hard to imagine. Um, And yet there were people there who said, we have to find a way to expand Medicare for the 70,000 people in this state who fall in the donut between the uh, state and federal exchanges because they're our neighbors. And um, the amazing thing about this is that the state legislature five years in a row refused to take the Affordable Care Act money that was effectively their own money coming back to them. They wouldn't do it. And so citizens said, well, let's do a statewide ballot initiative. And they bought and, you know, they were kids effectively. They also were in their twenties and they bought an old RV and they called it the Medicaid Express and they crusaded around the state generating attention and uh, getting petitions signed. And they got on the ballot and they won in Idaho in November of, of 2018 with about two thirds of the vote. That's amazing right i mean and there's similar victories in nebraska in florida on 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 felony disenfranchisement in in maine on ranked choice voting you can go around the country and you can see that when people come together and try to persuade there's still a deep sense of 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 fairness and right and wrong and you can win that conversation and some of these Powerful structural barriers. When people push at them, they can still come down.
0: You do tell a very compelling good news version of this, and I in no way want to drag ourselves (laughs) back down. And yet, (laughs) but here we go. But here we go. But uh, you know, look. I I mean, I think some of the difficulties that for example, independent redistricting commissions have run into. Some of the bumps in the road have been well publicized and in the news. Now, there is definitely, I I do want to spike the football for just a second on the good news story. I mean, one of the underreported aspects of the 2018 election amidst the blue wave is that these kinds of pro-democracy measures that were on ballots, on referenda in states across the country, including not just blue, but purple and red states, they romped. They won like 87% of the time. And we're talking in places like blue, you know, purple places like Colorado, red places like Missouri. There were some hands-down victories. You mentioned in Florida, the felon voting change. We saw support for independent redistricting commissions. We've already had an election to the U.S. Congress. That was where the result was changed because of ranked choice voting in the second congressional district in Maine. So we've seen some real world outcomes that have been improved because of exactly what you point to, real citizens getting engaged, proving that this is a winning issue. And by the way, it's an issue that is popular. These referenda outperformed the Democrats that were on the top of the ballot in all these states, in red states and purple states and blue states, consistently across the country. These things are more popular than either party, and they're popular on a bipartisan basis. That's great. That's good news. What do you make of some of the speed bumps and problems that have been encountered by independent redistricting redistricting commissions. We've seen it in Virginia. We've seen a partisan gerrymandered map come out from Democrats in Illinois. I have my own theory on this, but what's yours?
1: It's a great question. Um, And I think that, listen, I think that the Republican Party in this country has uh, broken faith with a democracy, that they're afraid to put their fate in the hands of voters and unwilling to accept that fate if it goes against them. Um, and I think that this is a party that has decided that it no longer wishes to speak to a changing American electorate and that they would rather double down on their base, um, a shrinking older white conservative rural base that is, is not the future of the country. Um, and that if you're going to have that as a political strategy, it requires um, requires rigging rules. It requires putting as many barriers as you can in front of the other side's voters. Um, and I think that that's what you are seeing. Um, and so once you start down that path, it is extraordinarily difficult to stop. And the forces that are aligned against representative democracy and good government uh, are determined and they are fierce and they have decided that this is their only way forward. Um, So as soon as you pass an independent commission, uh, these folks try to find the loopholes and try to find, you know, there's zombies trying to find their way in through the windows like some episode of Stranger Things, you know, you lock the door and and in they come any way they can. Um, we've seen this in Michigan. We've seen it in Virginia. We've seen it in Arizona. Um, you know, I mean, it is, it's is—it's not enough. Um, we see what happened to felony reenfranchisement in Florida, right? A gerrymandered legislature and a Republican-packed Supreme Court effectively just overrode the will of the people and also imposed a poll tax on voting, um, something, you know, you would expect in the pre-voting rights
0: act era um right more like eighteen seventy seven
1: um, but it's happening right now yeah. in in a large state um, so I think this you know Democrats control the us House by about five seats um, and redistricting alone could be enough to turn the tide uh, you know I mean I mean gerrymandered maps in in Florida Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, and then what Republicans are able to do in New Hampshire, uh, and Kentucky, and Kansas, and 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 Tennessee, and Missouri, um, could well be enough to um, turn the tide in the House for them. Even if Democrats grab a couple seats in Illinois, a couple in New York, one in Oregon. Um, the Republican opportunity here is probably about two to three times the number of seats the Democrats are able to pick up through redistricting. And, and you know it's bad when either side does it, but Republicans have got greater opportunity here. And then if you look at what Republicans have been up to in uh, South Carolina, in Indiana, in Oklahoma, what they're trying to do is eliminate even the very notion of a competitive district. So districts like the one in Oklahoma, the Democrats managed to win in 2018. That's being gerrymandered out of out of existence. You know, the the competitive district around Omaha and Nebraska is being you know <laughs> gerrymandered out of existence. Um, so we are looking at you know, I mean, at a you can look at this optimistically in, in in one way and say, well, you know, citizens have come together and made some change. But then I think you have to look at it the other way as well and say, well this is like playing whack-a-mole and the professional determined partisans are always smarter at it and, and hold a bigger mallet.
0: Well, I think what, what I hear you pointing to is something that uh, you, uh, listeners have heard me make this argument before. Actually, you could go a year back in our podcast feed and listen to Justin Levitt, who is one of the National Redistricting Commission experts in this country, he's actually now serving in the Biden administration. He's a Loyola Law School professor. We had him on the show when we were talking about this very thing. And I think what we've seen play out is what you're pointing to, which is it's sort of a unilateral disarmament problem. It's that Republicans are down the line determined to do partisan gerrymandering to get every last scrap of advantage and power that they can and Democrats, by and large, have tried to create, when they have the opportunity, they try and create independent redistricting commissions. And we're at such a knife's edge in terms of the direction of who holds the reins of power in this country. The incentives are so bad for Democrats to just say, well, look, why should we unilaterally disarm when Republicans are remaining armed to the teeth? That's suicide why hand the reins, especially when we're staring down the barrel of a potential extinction level event for democracy with the potential reelection of Donald Trump in 2024, we have to do every last thing we can. So what I end up arguing to people is just because we've run into some road bumps and because we have really rough incentives to not unilaterally disarm. It doesn't mean that these aren't steps in the right direction and that we shouldn't continue them because that does seem to be where we need to get to more broadly if we're ever going to fix all these problems that have cropped up. Speaking of which, I wanna ask you about a distinction that the election law expert Rick Hassan has raised in a New Yorker interview that he did a few weeks ago and that I touched on in an op-ed that I wrote for Newsweek about a week ago. He draws a distinction between voter suppression and election subversion. Voter suppression being the kinds of things that we've all grown used to, not just partisan gerrymandering, but also voter ID and purging voters from the voter rolls selectively, in places where Democrats tend to vote, and all kinds of measures that Republicans, by and large, have enacted to make it harder to vote and shape the vote to their advantage. But then what Professor Hassan says is, there's a whole new category of thing that we need to fight, which is election subversion. The ability of legislators to step in for politicians, Republicans, in places that they control, to step in and say, you know what? We don't care what voters said in this so-called election. We are just gonna determine the result ourselves. Are you seeing this kind of growth of this new category of thing out there and how big a threat is it and are, are, are Democrats doing enough to fight it?
1: It's a great question. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I think I wrote the first piece in the country in March of 2020 in Salon saying that, um, just as the pandemic was starting, that this is going to be used as an excuse to try to tip the election into state legislatures in, in the fall. Um, and uh, so I absolutely agree with what is being said here. And I'm very glad that P- Professor Hazen and um, others um, are, are making this case as profoundly and strongly uh, as they are. Are we doing enough about it? No. Um, Let me back up just a little bit, because I mean, I think your last point was important. Um, And what I, Democrats cannot unilaterally disarm, but I also think they cannot out-partisan gerrymander their way into power. The math doesn't add up. It might make Democrats feel better to gerrymander the hell out of Illinois and New York and Oregon. It doesn't get them where they need to go. Um, It's not a viable road back to a majority. Um, So it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And at a time in which democracy itself is in a moment of existential crisis, honestly, I think it's a waste of time. What Democrats do have is they've got complete control in Washington. They've got the Congress and they've got the White House, and they need to use this moment, perhaps this last chance, when they will have that kind of control to really pass the kind of structural democracy reform that we see in the Freedom to Vote Act and that we see in the John Lewis Act. Um, It's got to happen and it's got to happen now because time is running out. And it's running out because of what also is happening in state legislatures. And uh, that's why the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Act are so crucial because they would be an effective countermeasure against so many of these measures that are coming out of state legislatures. And Rick and others are right. It's a combination of, of, of voter suppression and um, election subversion. I would suggest it all starts with gerrymandering, because it starts in all of these states that Republicans targeted in 2010 because they were so close. One control in places like Michigan, places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, um, the subversion that they've done in Georgia and Arizona. Um, a, a gerrymandering is the original sin in these places that allows them to hold these legislatures and then to pass whether it is voter suppression measures like ID and or, or precinct closures or ballot purges uh, or stopping people from getting water or sort of any, uh, you know, requiring additional signatures uh, on, on absentee ballot applications, all of the things that they have done um, starts with gerrymandered control. Um, and then you try to tip Elections. You you try to take the power away from secretaries of state who are elected statewide and hand it to these gerrymandered, insulated legislatures, or you find the pressure points uh, that people didn't think about. You know, maybe it's a a county election certification board somewhere in Michigan or Georgia, uh, and you install loyalists there, or you move that power to the legislature. Um, and so we are heading down a really, really dark and dangerous road. If Democrats do not find a way to use the power that they have right now, uh, we will be talking about the missed opportunity to preserve and protect American democracy for a long time, um, assuming we're not all you know, in enforced re-education schools, (laughs) Um, you know. We will still have elections. Uh, We'll still be able to vote. It'll just be a competitive autocracy and those votes won't matter. Um, And so it all comes back around to doing something right now in this moment to protect the right to vote uh, because those rights are under assault at multiple levels uh, and it has to be addressed because the avenues to save things are closing on us.
0: You know, I know I promised our listeners that we would take the journey down to the depths and then see if we could find our way back up. I'm not sorry though, that we're going to end our discussion on that note about some of the danger, some of the risk and some of the urgency that we need to be applying to the problem. Because if there's one thing that I want people to take away from David Daly's books, from my op-ed, from all of the writings and thinkings we've been talking about here, it's that this is deadly serious. This is deadly, deadly serious. And it's not going too far to call it an extinction-level event for America and American democracy. We're not making this stuff up. And so the level of urgency needs to meet the challenge that's in front of us. David Daly, thank you so much for taking us on this journey on Beyond Politics.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for uh, all of the spotlights you are shining on these important issues in this moment. People think it can't happen here. It's happening here as we speak before our very eyes.